So good morning to you all and welcome to Rhythm City Church. You all look beautiful and handsome. Welcome Laura. <laughs> we missed you. And also to our new visitor, uh, Karibu Sana. And everybody else who stand up. We treasure uh, all of you. Pastor is not with us today this morning. He had to travel up country uh, to be with his family. Uh, but please, he didn't tell me to say hi to you, but... <laughs> I will not lie on stage, no. But pray for him that they have uh, safe travels and a wonderful time as family. All right. So we've been going through the book of Romans. Uh, it's been a long series. And we are almost at the end. Just hang in there. We're almost uh, done with it. But above all, we hope that you've been receiving these precepts, these principles, this uh, doctrine that Paul was laying as a basis and it's amazing that the book of Romans comes first as one of the letters, as the letters actually Paul writes. And there's a reason for that. It's because it lays the basis on which now the other letters are written. So we basically understand the doctrine that is laid down in Romans, even as we proceed on to the other letters that are written. And we said at the beginning that the book of Romans was actually Paul writing a letter to the church in Rome. The reason being that the Jews who had been banished for a season had come back to Rome. And they were basically telling the Christians, the Gentiles who converted to Christianity, that for them to attain salvation, they had to practice rituals or things that the Romans, uh, that the uh, Jews practiced before. And so the Jews are saying, look, for you guys to be saved, uh, you have to be circumcised. But Paul comes, uh, comes and says, look, you don't have to be circumcised because if you consider your father Abraham, and this is Romans chapter 4, he says, your father Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Alright? And this was before he was circumcised. So he nullified that argument and said, no, you do not have to be circumcised. All you have to do is believe on the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this contest continues where there's an argument between these two groups of Christians. And that's why Paul is writing to them to clarify this matter. And we know that in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, Look, this is the too good to be true news. That's what he's calling the gospel. It is too good to be true. Why? Because it doesn't take effort on your part. It doesn't take you performing it doesn't take you performing certain rituals so that you may receive salvation. No, this thing was done by our Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. What is our part? Our part is to receive salvation by faith, which has been brought by grace. In fact, Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. So grace is this big glory that is carrying salvation and you receive it or you unlock it by faith. So that is all that you have to do. You don't have to perform. You don't have to do anything uh, ritualistic for God to hear your prayers, for you to have fellowship with him, for you to have relationship with him. And, and as I said, uh, this argument is continuing and Paul is dealing with issue after issue, nullifying this aspect of works versus grace. Things to do with the law. Because the law was very prescriptive, prescriptive 
you had to do certain things. And even in chapter 14, as Pastor preached last week, there were two issues that Paul tackled. He said, look, you people are talking about certain foods that should not be eaten. The Jews were very careful because they're in Rome. They were not sure how the meat that came to their tables was prepared. They're not sure whether the blood was drained properly. They're not sure whether this animal was dedicated to idols. So guess what? They all, become, they all became vegans. Eh? So they were vegetarians. So they chose to be vegetarians in that day. In fact, if you look at uh, chapter 14, and I believe uh, verse 2, Paul is referring to them as those who are weak in faith. Which is amazing, because he's saying, you Gentiles don't laugh at the Jews who are weak in faith. And it's a, it's a paradox because it's assumed that the person who is more religious is superior to the one who is not. But Paul is saying, no, these guys are weak in faith because they believe that they have to do certain things for God to qualify them. All you have to do is receive. He also deals with the aspect of observing particular days like the Sabbath day or particular feast days. And he says, look, do not attach great importance to a particular day. To some, Sabbath will be every day. To another, it will be on a Friday. To another, it will be Saturday. And he says, look, he doesn't mind you observing those days so long as you do not place them as a qualification for you to receiving salvation. Are we together? Am, am I going too fast? We're good. All right, so Paul has dealt with those points of the law. All right, he's dealt with circumcision. He's dealt with the foods that one needs to eat. He's also dealt with the days that we observe. So we get quickly into Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12, basically, we had the, had the opportunity to speak on it uh, a couple of Sundays ago. And basically, we dealt with the subject of finding, following, and fulfilling God's will. And we only covered verse 1 and 2. So we have like another 19 verses to go. Guess how long that will take? <laughs> a bit of a while. And can I ask that we open a bit more of the site so that... It's a bit cooler in here. Thank you very much. So, we begin in verse 1 of chapter 12. And we carry on. We'll just go through that and do a quick recap. And it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So we said, in that Sunday I, I preached, I think it was about three Sundays ago, that verse 1 and 2 are a recipe for you for finding, following, and fulfilling God's perfect will for you. But you'll notice as we read verse 1, there's the word therefore. And the word therefore means that it's a continuation or a conclusion of a thought or a statement that Paul was making in chapter 11 and verse 36, which is the last verse before we move to chapter 12. And this is what he says in Romans 11:36. For of him 
and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What these two verses are telling us is that God is the source of life. He is the means by which all life functions. And all life is ultimately accountable to him. In other words, God is all in all and therefore deserves our total submission. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our reasonable service. It's our reasonable service to him. And you know what? It's not a one-time decision. It's a decision that we have to make daily. We have to take this decision on a daily basis. And basically why we are called a living sacrifice in verse 1 is because it's an ongoing commitment that we have to make to the Lord. Every day you have to lay yourself on the altar and say, Father, I yield totally to you. I yield my will to you. I yield my ambitions to you. I choose your plan for me. It's a daily exercise. And even as we offer ourselves as a daily sacrifice, basically God is helping us to do what we call cost correction. Talking of that is a great example. I'm sure you've all read in history that in 1969, we had what we call the Apollo spacecraft. And basically this was a rocket, if you like, that went to the moon. But it wasn't a simple blasting off and then landing on the moon. It wasn't that simple. In fact, it said that the technology they used, your phone is superior probably a thousand times in terms of technology compared to what they used on that spacecraft. It is. <clears throat> and the reason for that is they had to do cost correction every 10 minutes. And sometimes they would find themselves going in the opposite direction. But they had to do cost correction. And they did that for the entire journey. Even when they landed, they just landed within a few feet of what they called the targeted area. Within a very few feet. Others would have been outside. And the targeted area was a whole 800 kilometers. Because they were doing course correction every 10 minutes. And likewise, we may have to do course corrections every 10 minutes for the rest of our lives. We may be making a mistake here. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We make a... So God is correcting us, helping us, guiding us to that which he has designated for us. We've talked about predestination. He has a plan for each and every one of us. And we will course correct. And guess what? You never quite arrive. But you're course corrected. He'll lead you to your destination in terms of the thing he has for you. But we'll course correct every moment here and now. Here and then. So, so remember that this sacrifice that we are offering, which is our body, that Paul is beseeching us to offer, it is consumed by the fire of God. When we yield our, our bodies and when we renew our minds, according to verse 2, we are inviting the fire from heaven to come and burn this sacrifice that we are putting on the altar. And we see God uh, God's fire from heaven, consuming sacrifice that is totally yielded to him. 
And I want us to look at the first example, which is in the book of Leviticus, where we see this happening, chapter 9 and verse 23 to 24. And this is a story where Moses and Aaron had gone into the tabernacle of meeting to basically worship God. And the children of Israel were also waiting outside to hear what's going on. And so the story carries on in verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This must be dramatic. Fire came from before the Lord. That's amazing. His presence was evident in that place. And in fact, Moses had told them, look, the Lord is going to be present today. He's going to be present. And these guys went to the tabernacle of meeting and came out. And as they were worshipping, this fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that had been laid there. And when people see that, it causes those who are mortals, men, who those who depend on seeing the physical, it is a demonstration of God's power. We see the same happening in First Kings, uh, the story of Elijah. That's a contest at Mount Carmel. Uh, chapter 18 and verse 36 to 39, I'll read quickly. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that these people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. We see another example in Second Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 1 to 3. And here Solomon is dedicating the temple that he has built. His father David was not allowed to build this temple. But Solomon was given the opportunity. That was his destiny, to build the temple for the Lord. And now he's dedicating the temple to him. In chapter 7, verse 1. It says, when Solomon had finished praying, all right, he had finished praying. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When the, all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. In our context, in the New Testament context, after Jesus has come and died and is risen again, we see this in fire. This empire in a different way, and we should be seeing it here in our day. 
And we see it in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 to 4. And it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance. The fire of the Holy Spirit is what consumes us as a daily sacrifice. When we lay ourselves on the altar. It is the fire of the Holy Spirit. And even here it was visual. People could see that fire on top of those people's heads as they prayed in other times. So we've seen the fire coming and consuming the sacrifice in the tabernacle of meeting. We've seen the same fire come and consume the sacrifice in Solomon's temple. In 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not of your own? Every time we yield ourselves unto the Lord, He brings revival to you. He will consume you with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And all it takes is for you to yield yourself to Him. Alright, we'll carry on. In verse 3 of chapter 12. At verse 8 it says, For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man. The, the measure of faith, not a measure of faith. King James is probably the most accurate version, and, and we can have a debate about that. Others may tell you a measure of faith. It's the measure of faith. When you got born again and you received the new spirit and the Holy Spirit moved into your heart, God gave you the measure of faith. How much faith you exercise is really up to you. Not up to God. He's given you the measure of faith. Because scripture says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells on the inside of you. So how much of it you want to exercise really is dependent on you. It's like serving soup. You know when you're in a soup line and they're using a, a soup ladle? Is that what call it? Soup ladle? So it's a particular scoop that you get, isn't it? And it's usually the same measure. So it's called the measure of faith. So no big uh, man of God has more faith than you have. No. He's probably exercising his faith more than you are. But we have the measure of faith. Let's carry on. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. What that is meaning, because it may sound like a contradiction to what I've said, we all have the opportunity to prophesy. I'm sure we've done exercises before. I don't know that you guys remember. A few years ago, where we all stand up and we say, God speak to us prophetically, and you get a neighbor, and you prophesy to them. And it's amazing. 
You see, when we yield ourselves, hey, we see amazing things happening here. So, but we are not all called to the office of the prophet. We can all prophesy, but we're not all called to be prophets in that sense. So that's why it's saying the proportion to which you've been given. So if it's a ministry gift that you've been given, you use it to that extent. But it doesn't preclude anyone from prophesying. So that's what that statement means. Or ministry. Let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. And he that ruleth, administrator, with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So verse 3 is a continuation of verse 2. And you remember verse 2 was talking about us renewing our minds so that we may prove it may be made manifest to our physical senses. That which is, which is that good, perfect and acceptable will of God. So those two verses, when you combine them, basically they're saying humility and surrender are the key to success in your relationship with God. I'll say that again. Humility and surrender are the key to a great relationship with God. But also, analyzing the verse further, we see that the different gifts that we have, it doesn't mean one is better than the other. And that's why Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. We should have a correct perspective and viewpoint of that which has been given unto us. And verse 4, the summary of it is that although we've all been given the measure of faith, we have not all been given the same job. In other words, we all have different gifts in the body of Christ. Some of you may be wondering, I, I don't even know what my gift is. There's a starting place. I'll encourage you. And you will discover as you grow in your relationship with God. So verse 4 continues to say that we have different parts of the body with different functions. So the finger cannot say to the knee, because I'm placed higher than you, I'm more important. Without the knee, the finger will be on the ground. Mm -hmm. So when you try and rank yourself, oh, me, I'm in muscle team, therefore must be there. And that guy preaching must be up there. No, we are of the same body. We just have different functions. So we need to embrace our differences in terms of gifting. That's what verse 5 is saying. And you can't force everybody to do a particular thing. All right? People have to discover what God has placed in them. Of course, you start from a place of service. And as you seek him, your gift becomes apparent. Now, verse 6. It's very important to bear in mind. That grace, the grace of salvation, has come to all of us. It has appeared to all men, according to Titus 2.11. However, there are other graces that we've been given. The grace of salvation has appeared to all men. Let me make that clear. But there are other graces. It's these other gifts that we're talking about. And we see them being enumerated very well in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 to 7, which we will not read. But seven of those gifts are listed here. In verse 6. And you have uh, the first one which is prophecy. Which I've spoken about. Then you have ministry. Ministry is interesting because the Greek word for it is diakonia. That's D-I-A-K-O-N-I-A. Diakonia basically means serving. That's where we derive the word deacons from. So if you're in muscle crew and you're lifting up speakers. 
You're a deacon. You're serving. You're in ministry. If anything, if you want to rank them, it's placed higher than teaching. Alright? So that's where you start ministry from. From serving. So crew captains in your crews. We should call you deacons from today henceforth. Then number three, you have teaching. Then number four, exhorting. Then number five, giving. Then number six, ruling. So we must who's this ruler? The ruler is right here. The ruler in this place is the administrator, the admin. So Agnes, who is the admin, is our ruler. <laughs> so it basically talks about the administrator. That's what it talks about, the ruler. And number seven, the other gift is showing mercy. It's interesting. Agnes is the ruler, then we show mercy. <laughs> Agnes' sister is called mercy. That's why we are laughing. So we are ruled by Agnes, then we show mercy with the sister. Cool. So verse 9 to 11 of chapter 12, he says, Let love be without dissimulation. Dissimulation is hypocrisy. That's what it means. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor preferring one another. Not slothful or lazy in business. Uh -huh. is, a, is a kiboko coming there? Not slothful in business. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Part of true love is hatred. Jingo has lifted his head. <laughs> I'll explain. Part of true love is hatred. If we don't hate the things that oppose the one we truly love, then that's not God's kind of love. Why? Because we've been told that we need to hate evil. If we don't hate evil, then our love for God is with dissimulation. It's with hypocrisy. We are being hypocritical. So if you profess and say, I love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, in there is hatred for evil. You have to hate that which is evil. You don't entertain it or accommodate it. You hate it. And that is scripture. So that's not some. Because I had too much pizza last night and I'm giving you my own stories. Scripture is there. You go and read and have your own revelation on that. Verse 11. Many scriptures, but they speak about slothfulness or laziness. One of them is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. It says, This we command you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. If you're not going to work or looking for work, you're not entitled to eat. That's the Bible for you. New Testament. <laughs> Alright? <laughs> and what's interesting is that Paul is speaking about not being lazy or slothful after he's mentioned brotherly love and preferring one to another. This is important because you need to bring a balance to brotherly love. Why do I say that? I say that because we have a responsibility to help. That's our responsibility, to help, to love one another. But a handout to a lazy person is not helping. You're not helping them at all. If anything, 
when we support those who are living in direct disobedience to God's instruction regarding laziness or slothfulness, we are actually hurting those people. So when we help someone who is lazy or who doesn't want to find work, you are hurting them. You are not helping them. So charity should be reserved for those who need it, not those who abuse it. It usually goes over like that when you <laughs> but that's scripture and that's what Paul is saying we need to balance brotherly affection with making sure that we're not abusing help that we give to other people verse 12 to 16 rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation continuing instant in prayer instant means to adhere continuing adhering in prayer if you like Distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. And weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one towards another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Basically associate to those who are humble. Be not wise in your own conceits or in your own opinion. So verse 14, let's start with verse 14. Basically it's saying life and death are in the power of the tongue. Every word you speak is either releasing life or it's releasing death. Choose life, as scripture says. And verse, verse 15 is talking about people who are maybe self-centered. They will not rejoice at another person's prosperity. If anything, they are jealous instead. And likewise, selfish people, instead of weeping with those who weep, they really don't care about anybody else other than themselves. So that's verse 15 for you. Verse 16, the summary is, Paul is commanding the Romans to be of the same mind towards each other. Unity among the believers is commanded in scripture. And he's very careful to say, do not mind high things. Basically what he's saying there is, don't be a snob. There is no room in Christianity for being a snob. In fact, he says, do not seek out prestigious people and snob those whom the world considers not important. Cliques, snobbing, has no place in the house of God. If there are people you don't talk to in this church, you are in contravention of the scripture. And those who are in pride, the Bible is clear, God will resist you. He gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. So we have no room for cliques in this church. And I think I have the authority of the pastor to say that. There are no cliques in this church. We are not snobbish. We don't disregard other people. We associate with everyone. We are of one mind. Amen? Because when we practice that, basically we, are, we risk destroying our faith, especially so if we are seeking honor from our fellow men. So if I'm seeking to impress so-and-so so that I can go get honor from them, but I don't care about so-and-so, I'm perceiving them to be lower than me, you risk destroying your faith. Verse 17 to 21. We're almost at the end. 
Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So verse 17 is basically saying there's this unwritten code in human relations that say that you treat people the way they treat you. Mm -hmm. But Jesus taught us the opposite. And Paul reaffirms the same in verse 17. And surely if we are Christ-like, we cannot give people what they deserve. Look, you're not responsible for what the other person decides to do to you or their actions. But you are commanded to treat them with love, not to avenge. So we are not responsible for other people's actions, but we must pursue peace even when we are not at fault. For example, you have a car accident. The other person is at fault. You should come out of your car and go and mind whether they're okay. They're fine. Rather than saying, you are to blame. Yeah, da, 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 da. Even if the police comes and they bribe him, it's okay. God will take care of you. Alright? So we should ensure that we are at peace with all people, whether or not they choose to be at peace with us. It's really their decision. Now, I'm very cognizant of the fact that, that Romans 12, 19 to 21 is humanly impossible. Uh, when you come to the ground, you can acquire ground. Things are different. Huh? Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. But, I have, but it's, it takes supernatural power of faith to basically move in that manner that is prescribed for us. So let God be the one to defend you. And letting him do that is a matter of faith. Taking matters in your own hands is saying, look, I have a lack of faith in God. I'm not sure he'll take care of me. You're saying, you're questioning his integrity in such a thing. But allow Lord, allow the Lord, allow the Lord, not allow Lord, allow the Lord to work his wrath on those who do us wrong instead of trying to inflict it ourselves. That ministers to me because you try and cut me up in traffic and I used to chase you down the road (laughs) until I avenge myself, which is foolishness. Mm -hmm. All right. So I joined one boy in uh, Road Ridge. (laughs) Amen. Amen. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, God takes what happens to his saints personally. When he says he'll defend you, he takes what happens to his saints personally. You remember the story of Saul on his journey to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus and Saul did not meet physically. But the persecution that Saul was meeting out on Christians, especially even the death of Stephen, Jesus took it personally. 
it was him who was being persecuted. That's how God sees any persecution or people who may wrong you. Know that God takes it personally. And he's more capable of dealing with those who trouble us than we can. Easier said than done, but that's the truth. And we need to employ that supernatural power of faith and let God deal with that. Verse 20 basically saying, calls of fire are not calls of punishment or torment. It's rather calls of conviction. God will convict those people. Why? Because God's kind of love is being promoted, even in this funny context that we may see. It's not some scriptural way of uh, hurting those who hurt us. God will know how to deal with them without necessarily heaping literal cause of fire on them. But for us, we walk in love towards those who hurt us. It heaps conviction on them. The last verse 21, it's saying, we cannot fight evil with evil. Evil can only be overcome with good. All right? And I know and I appreciate it's frustrating to see the schemes of the enemy and they look like they're thriving. However, we must not be tempted to engage in his tactics. Those are his tactics. If you join the fray, then you're no different than anybody else out there. So don't let that frustration come to you. The wrath, James chapter 1 verse 20 says, the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So, instead of cursing the darkness, let us turn on the light. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is there for us to understand, to guide us. It's a lamp unto our feet. We thank you for these principles and precepts that you've been teaching us, Father, in the book of Romans. This basis on which, Father, we may grow in relationship with you. Quite apart from works or following rituals that are prescribed in law, Father, you've invited us to a relationship of salvation with you through faith. And we thank you, Father, that you have provided everything that we need for life and godliness. And you invite us continually to have relationship with you. And Father, I thank you for this, your precious people who've received this word with joy and gladness. And I thank you that the enemy will not steal it, but that word will be sown in their hearts. That Father, that word will grow and bear fruit and that fruit will remain to the glory and honor of your name. And even as we are in prayer, I'd like to invite any one of us who has not made a decision to ask Jesus into their life. What I've been saying to you may not apply until you make that decision. It's the most important decision that you'll ever make on this earth. I dare say it's perhaps it's the only decision we are supposed to make on this earth. The rest are secondary. The decision is what will you do with that sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ made? What will you do with it? Will you reject it and do life on your own? Or will you accept it? Will you say, I recognize that Lord, you died for me, that you forgave my sins, that you've given me salvation. I choose to believe that by faith. And when you do so, you basically re receive a new spirit. 
you are born again. You are born from above. You become the righteousness of God in Christ. Your spirit is perfect, yes, but your mind needs to be renewed as we've read in verse 2. The rest of your life you'll be renewing your mind and offering your body as a living sacrifice, but your spirit is perfect. And basically it will be an exercise in giving your spirit dominion if you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So he's inviting you to make this decision today. And if you're there and you'd like to make that decision, just lift up your hand. And when I see it, you can put it down. Thank you. I've seen it, you can put it down. So saints, help me to pray together with this person who's put up their hand. <clears throat> pray with them and pray alongside what I say. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. The forgiveness of sins. Father, I choose to receive forgiveness this day by faith. And I declare that Jesus, you are Lord and Savior of my life. I thank you that I'm now the righteousness of God in Christ. And I thank you that you're discipling me every day and bringing me to the full stature of my Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Let's celebrate that song. So if you've made that decision and I've seen you, we can meet after the service. If you still want to make that decision, there's still opportunity. I'll just be here and we can pray together with you. It's the most important decision. This life is only so long. I know the oldest person I know is probably 120 years old. After that, there is eternity. Eternity. Years without number. That's more important. And we're here to make that decision. Where will we spend our eternity? Alright? So thank you guys. And I hope this was a blessing to you.